This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Podcast, episode number six. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I talk to Trey Combs, who is one of the most influential people in the history of steelhead fly fishing. Trey gets into a bunch of steelhead topics and also talks about blue water fly fishing, goes deep into the steelhead uh, history of flies, some of his biggest influences, and his upcoming new book. Trey gets pretty fired up in this one as he talks about the Thompson River steelhead issues that are occurring currently and how he documents this in his new book. So without further ado, here's Trey Combs. It's really great to have you on the show, Trey. We've been uh, chatting here a while trying to get things set up, so I'm glad we had a a chance to get this all ready to go. Um, I have a bunch of uh, questions here focused mostly around steelhead fishing and but I want to get into definitely some background on your history because that was kind of the, f- the first time I heard a recent interview with you. You were talking a lot about your some of the blue water stuff you've done. So I think that's really interesting, and I'd love to love to dig into that a little bit. So uh, maybe you can just start us off with a little bit of your history, like as far as how you got going in fly fishing and steelhead fishing and how you got to the place where you are today. That's a big question. My <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, was... Uh, raised in a my brother and I were raised in a Navy family so we moved a lot um, but my grandparents lived in Port Townsend and I swore that I'd go back there and live one day and, and that's where I went back and after college went back and taught school there huh. and uh, I've lived in Port Townsend for 40 some years and take I'm down here for a, a few years and I'm going to probably uh, go back and live in Port Townsend and maybe rent the house out I'm, I'm living in now but um, yeah uh, there was never any doubt about where I wanted to live and as a high school kid I locked into Steelhead uh, probably junior high actually okay um, there was a uh, there was an old uh, catalog catalogs were a big deal when I was a kid unlike today mm-hmm. where everybody Everything's online, but um, Ashway had a catalog, and I there was these huge salmon-like fish that these guys were holding up. That was my first time I'd ever seen pictures of steelhead. Hmm. Um, and then I subscribed to every magazine, Outdoor Life, Sports of Field, Field and Stream, and uh, I saw pictures of steelhead that, uh, like Ted Trueblood had caught, and that was before I actually were able to was able to get out and settle in Port Townsend. So um, the idea that you have rainbow trout that average seven or eight pounds was just a mind blower. Uh, I grew up mostly in Virginia, and oh. trout there were eight or nine inches long. So uh, yeah. a trout that was 28 or 30 inches was just amazing. So, <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, it was kind of locked into that uh, years and years before I ever actually saw a steelhead. Uh-huh. Wow. That's uh, gosh. So you got going fairly early. I mean, junior high. You and did you actually get out and were you? Did you get into steelhead fishing right away? Like as far as on the river after that? Oh, when I got to Washington State, I I couldn't get on the river fast enough. I um, 
I was going to, as I said, I was going to college down there, and I knew uh, who Jim Green was. Uh, Jimmy Green was uh, tied in with Fenwick uh-huh. at that time. He was the world's distance casting champion, single hand. Right. And uh, before coming up here, I had called him down there, and I, I told him I was going to Washington State, and I was going to be um, mano a mano with these giant steelhead and <laughs> salmon. And uh, he recommended a, a nine or ten weight rod, and I insisted on a eleven weight Fenwick. It was just insane, but. Um, that's what I came to Washington State with was this uh, wow uh, stick, Big tarpon rod. stick <laughs> for steelhead, and uh, um, I fished a wet cell shooting heads. Um, had not a clue how to catch a steelhead, and yeah. uh, I must have made a million casts before I actually hooked one. Uh, and what year? Was w- case of the river. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say. And what year was this, uh, roughly? Uh, when I was, oh, it'd be the late 1960s when I got to Washington state and, and began fly fishing. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And, uh, I'd been doing uh, research on steelhead, um, as a, as a sidelight to, to being in college. And I was teaching school down there on an emergency credential. There was a shortage of teachers in a, uh, a barrio, a Hispanic area and I got, I was still a, an undergraduate. In fact, I was just a junior and I got an emergency credential from uh, California and began teaching school as a certified school huh. teacher as an undergraduate, which is kind of weird. But, um, yeah, so I was, uh, already digging in and reading everything I could find on steelhead as a college student. So when I got to Washington, um, I was already headlong into uh, a book on the subject. It's oh, okay. actually kind of be a history of Western, Western fly fishing. Um, but, uh, yeah, as soon as I could, uh, as soon as I got here in Washington state, I, uh, I headed out to the peninsula okay. and began fishing out there. Gotcha. So those were the first rivers you really, you really hit for steelhead and probably the first place you, you got hooked your first steelhead. First uh, winter steelhead I got on a fly, uh, was, uh, on the hoe. Okay. And I took two, two one morning. Um, uh, as I said, I'd made millions of casts and I did not, the idea was that you had to get your fly down and yep. what the fly did after it got down, oftentimes the uh, line was heading downstream ahead of the fly. Mm-hmm. Very typical. And, um, and there was a run, uh, intertidal run on the lowest part of the hoe. It was probably the last run that you could say that was fishable. It wasn't actually uh, a pure intertidal area. And the lower hoe is not very much river. It's mm. uh, in a tiny little reservation down there. And I came on this run down there, and the uh, the flow of the river was such that it mended the line for me. It was hmm. just a matter of throwing my shooting head out there uh, slightly downstream and the current was such that it just picked up the uh, line, and the fastest current was um, against the bank, and uh, it was a perfect swing <laughs> uh, by accident. Yep. And I uh, uh, took um, a jack steelhead and then a, a regular uh, huh. two ocean steelhead wow. one morning, uh, and I understood what had happened. Um, the first summer steelhead came from the north, uh, the Stilly North Fork. Thanks, Jack. Jack just. Uh, Built oh, me a cup of coffee awesome. and set us up here this morning. You're so, good to go then. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I am good to go, Dave. All Get right. Out. Oh, that's that's great. I love uh, this. Is I mean, this is pretty much the stories 
or what this show is about for me, you know, hearing, hearing this is, is awesome. Especially I've got a little, a little piece on my website that's about kind of first steelhead stories, you know, and one of them is my, um, my brother writes a story there that basically I think the title is something like 13 steelhead lost, you know, I quit or something like that. And he basically one year when he was first getting into it, he lost 13 in a row. And uh, he almost gave, and he almost gave up fishing, and pretty much he finally landed one. But it's like steelhead is just—I mean, that's kind of what it is, right? You, you you kind of put your time in, and eventually get these amazing moments. So, Deer Creek was a, a small feeder stream. In fact, back in those days, Puget Sound had uh, had runs of one-year ocean fish. Okay. And uh, they are—they were a godsend. They were very trouty. They're free rising. A lot of the pioneers in Washington fly fishing all had cabins on the North Fork of the Stilly, just below Deer Creek, mm-hmm. and like Walt Johnson. And that was those fish were so trotty that you could take them on a drag-free uh, dry mm-hmm. fly without a waking dry. Wow! Um, and we didn't appreciate back then what a remarkable race of steelhead we had in Puget Sound, and now they're yeah. they're listed. I think they're threatened. Yep. Uh, maybe not endangered, but they're threatened. They're trying to rebuild stocks in the Puget Sound. Um, I've really gotten into this on a new book that I'm working on. I've been working on it for several years now. Yeah. But the, uh, the the different races of steelhead is what makes the sport so magical that, um, you know, Puget Sound had these one-year ocean fish, which were four or five. I think my first steelhead on a, a summer run on the North Fork of the Stilly was, I don't think it was more than five pounds. Mm. Uh 25 inch fish mm-hmm. and um the uh you've got half pounder races down the klamath and the rogue and the trinity and so forth yeah um you've got uh out on the west end on the op you've got winter runs with the occasional four-year ocean fish mm-hmm. um nice and in canada you've got discrete races um the, um, I'm kind of wandering here a bit, but I just finished a, a section of the book on uh, a kind of a historical part on the uh, Sacramento and San Joaquin watersheds. Um, and they have estimated that uh, they have lost uh, about 100, close to 100 discrete races of steelhead. Hmm. There is no record of them. There's no life histories that have survived. Uh, the, the few fish that are left are all hatchery fish. Yep. And uh, most of those fish, uh, the DNA of those fish is mostly from the Eel River because <laughs> they use broodstock from the eel in their hatchery programs. So the uh, historically, there may have been a million fish, a million summer on steelhead that, that came in the, the uh, Sacramento and San Joaquin watersheds all the way up to the Feather and Yuba and uh, American at the top. The, mm-hmm. the Sacramento went all the way deep into Oregon. <laughs> but um, all those races, I mean, they had to be as different as the other California races where you have everything from half pounder to a big uh, eel uh, steelhead that are probably three year ocean fish and weigh over 20 pounds. Nothing survives. There's not even a record of what wow. was lost. Yeah. Uh, the gold mining and the, and the hydro uh, hydraulics of um, yep. hydraulic mining devastated those rivers. And before anybody could figure out what the hell was going on down there in terms of the steelhead population, they were gone. Yeah. Just like, it's, uh, it's so sad, but, uh, yeah. anyway, uh, go ahead with your questions. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was kind of wandering around there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, it's a great point because it's, uh, you know, it's challenging, you know, we're trying to recover these stocks, but, uh, we've lost, lost a lot of the genetic, uh, uh, history there, but, um, yeah, so no, I appreciate that. Um, 
I was kind of thinking as you talked about your, your book coming up, is that going to be, uh, do you have an idea? Is that coming out this, this next year? The, your recent book? The, uh, it should have, the writing of it should have been completed this year. And I did a move and, um, and then I had uh, some really out, difficult, uh, issues with the back with, um, a broken down back. I've yep. got a surgery coming up this winter that will kind of get me rolling again. I haven't been able to f- wade out into a river cause I'm on, um, I'm on a lot of painkillers and right. my back is busted down in a couple places. So I'm going to do a, a fusion on my lower back this winter and that will be really helpful. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, this, the, uh, it's a, it's kind of a history book in a way. And, uh, mm-hmm. but it's, it's current. It's, um, I'm, I'm desperately trying to keep it to one volume as opposed to two volumes, but it could run into two. And if that's the case, I'm going to need, you know, I'll have to go to, to some investors to get this thing rolling with, uh, mm-hmm. I've talked to Tom Perro a lot about it at Wild River Press. Mm-hmm. He's a longtime friend of mine and I greatly admire the, the books that he has produced. They're beautifully done. So, uh, and I've also talked to Stackpole. So, mm-hmm. but, uh, in fact, I would, spent yesterday banging emails back and forth with uh, Tom Perro about the plight of the Thompson River steelhead. Right, right. Uh, which is uh, just absolutely tragic what is happening. And uh, I think they're gone. I think they're mm. going to go extinct. Wow. But sadly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the uh, talk for an hour just on that subject alone. Yeah. It's, uh, it's complicated. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the escapement this year, uh, t- Pete Sovereil, I read an email that he sent to Tom Perro yesterday, and he thought that the, the escapement was 130 fish or 133, something like that. I'd heard 200. Yeah. And during the Depression, the estimates of the run has been 30,000. Yep. And uh, I know why the, the fish are gone, but, uh, but what to do about it, um, it's too late to hold a bunch of meetings and uh, right. and right. give up your fishing and stuff. It's the yeah. horses out of the barn on that one. Sure. The government, if the government will not step in and facilitate a, um, um, a uh, save the Thompson steelhead program of some sort, then they're going to be lost. But yeah. anyway, Dave, I yeah. kind of spoke over the top of you. Go ahead with your questions. Oh, yeah, no. So I was just kind of on the this track of of your books maybe you can uh for those that don't you know you i mean i know you've obviously obviously been around the uh you know fly fishing for a long time but maybe you can talk about your kind of the first books you you wrote or some of the stuff that you roy um you know kind of the popular books that you've you've done so far the um i wrote a, a huge long book which is kind of the history of western fishing uh, going back to the 19th century and the beautiful cane rods that were being built for, uh, which were just a perfect match for our drift fishing, but they were used in the saltwater. But um, the I took that to a publisher that Frank Amato had introduced me to, and the publisher said, this thing's got to be stripped down <laughs> to less than half of this length, and you've got to concentrate just on the steelhead. So I did, <laughs> and... Um, I took the public the book back to uh, the publisher about ten months. That's all I did for ten months was edit this thing, <laughs> and uh, I was with Frank. We went and talked to the publisher, and, and he just said, "You know, I don't think I'm going to do this." So Frank liked what I'd done and said, "You know, I'm going to publish this book." And it was it was the first book a model publications did. It was called 
call it the steelhead trout hmm. oh, yeah. little book 6,000 yep. hard Great 6,000 copies hardback and um the uh, my my principal claim to fame in that book was for the first time in a publication popular publication we track the whereabouts of ocean steelhead that was something that had never been done before uh, and i uh, oh i spent six months going through um records by the north pacific fisheries commission uh, steelhead were caught in the high season and given a latitude longitude point and then mm -hmm. uh, a date um and those records uh, they were listed as an incident i listed all those uh, places where they'd found steelhead and then i began working with the university of washington with a fisheries biologist there and um Anyway, out of that came the ocean migratory habits of uh, steelhead, which really is not governed by current, but it's governed by temperature. Steelhead are incredibly sensitive to temperature, right. much more than a Chinook salmon. So uh, anyway, that book came out, and but I'd left a lot on the table, uh, and I was doing a lot of research on the history of the early steelhead flies. Um, the... I had so much of that, I came up with a, a second book, um, and I used a lot of the same information, but essentially the second book, Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies, was the first book written about the pioneers in steelhead fly fishing going back to John Ben in the 1890s, nice. um, the stagecoach routes that took people up on the eel and so forth. And um, Dave, I don't know how many printings that book went through. Yeah. I'm going to guess and say over 30. Wow. It was in print for 28 years, I think. Huh. And um, gosh, you know, I'd go in the most remote places in the, out here in the West, and I'd go into a gas station, and there'd be a little <laughs> pile of Amato publications, and yeah. there was that book. It just kept on going. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes I don't give any, I, I give very few talks anymore, but when I do, guys will come up and want me to sign a book. <laughs> and it, it's not uh, blue water fly fishing nope. or steelhead fly fishing. It's that old book, uh, Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies, and it kind of, it kind of uh, set this. It gave the sport some sort of tradition in terms of who the movers and shakers were, and the guys who developed the flies, mm -hmm. who Jim Prey was, and the Eel River optics and that sort of stuff, and old time yeah. stuff. But yeah. um, I was uh, I was pleased in that it gave um, it, it it set the traditions of steelhead fly fishing down in print. And uh, as a starting point for, you know, yep. for future books and future writing and stuff. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I that was uh, very successful. I was pleased over that. Yeah. Well, and what, before that, what what was there as far as publications, or what what you know, what were you drawing on to get your information and dig into everything? Um. I was going to Seattle Library. I went up there, uh, made a couple trips to Seattle Library, you know, go to a parking place and pay a dollar, have my car parked all day. And I go in and I was going through old field and stream magazines and mm. stuff. And then I discovered that there was a, a newspaper called Forest and Stream, which was, I think, the uh, predecessor for Field and Stream. Oh, okay. But it was a, a it was a, it was like a newspaper and it came out on a weekly basis or maybe once every two weeks. And, uh, so I, I had one of these copies out and in those days, if you Xeroxed, 
was like a dime a copy and it was black with white lettering really weird but uh so the librarian said uh, you know we've got a complete record of this of hmm. this forest and stream wow and we're the only, there's only one other place in the western united states or only one other place in the world that has such an inventory <clears throat> and uh hmm. i couldn't believe it because this was a gold mine that's where i started coming up with the names of of john ben and oh. uh 19th century fly fishermen and the flies they fished right um Ben's coachman, that sort of thing. Hmm. Uh, I so I spent the next year every Saturday. I was teaching school. I just started teaching school, and every Saturday I'd drive up to Seattle from uh, from Port Townsend, take the ferry across, go to go to that library. Excuse me, I misspoke. I'm, I drove up from Tacoma. Oh yeah, and I would spend the day reading through these magazines and then xeroxing a few copies. And uh, then go the following week, and after a year, I had <laughs> I'd kind of tracked down uh, the development of Western angling. Wow! Uh, from this magazine, because in those days there was a lot of fl- uh, fishing clubs. Big one was the Golden Gate yep. Fishing Club, and there was yep. a San Francisco one. Anyway, these these were big time stuff, and <laughs> these guys had a monthly newsletter. That would uh, would be just like a Gillies report, you know, at the at a at your meetings at, of your fly club, right? And uh, but they posted these uh, every couple weeks in Forest and Stream, or every month in Forest and Stream, and uh, it was kind of a gossipy thing. It was wonderful, hmm. and it laid the groundwork for. So that was really where uh, we didn't have Google, didn't yeah. have the internet. No, uh, I. I contacted people who are still living with by phone calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were still some old timers in California that were still around, and uh, I made arrangements to meet them. And then I'd grab my camera and drive down and meet them and and interview them and yeah. take some pictures and and head back home. And so um, that's how that that's how steelhead fly fishing and flies came about. Yeah. Uh, by the time I got into another book after that, it was we did have computers and it made editing especially editing was uh, was much much easier but yeah 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 no that's great i uh yeah the steelhead trout is definitely i mean i've got uh, all those books on my shelf but uh i think that would be the one i'd have you sign is the steelhead trout because i think that's just a classic and in fact it's that was your first book i totally i, I didn't even uh, kind of forgot about that that's really cool um yeah yeah the uh i think the one that was other than steelhead fly fishing flies, the one that was most groundbreaking was one that is uh, most people in steelhead don't even know that I even wrote it was blue water fly fishing. Yeah, which was the first uh, treatment of uh, worldwide of offshore fly fishing for big game fish, hmm. and uh, that that took me. I wasn't working on a book to do it, but uh, it just the the events as as they unfolded and the business I was in, which was I was charter master of the um, for San Diego's Fisherman Landing huh. for offshore fly fishing, and I chartered a Shogun and, and Royal Star, and um, but from there I you know I was went to Australia and New Guinea and <laughs> South America. Um, I think I was the first one on the on the west coast of Colombia to ever take a um, sailfish on a fly. Wow! Um, but um, fly fished out of Panama. Um, it's just all over the world. Yeah. And I got about 
halfway through those destinations and I realized, you know, with a few key spots, I could put together a book. Um, let me just back up a second. Yeah. This is kind of weird, but a uh, long time ago, uh, in the course of steelhead fly fishing, some of the bar talk we had would be, it was evident uh, to guys who were getting into saltwater big game fishing. There weren't very many of us. But it was evident that we were finding out where the baby uh, marlin were. Hmm. There were places where marlin concentrated as juveniles. And for the first time, it was possible. I mean, there's no point in a guy with a fly rod going after a 500-pound black marlin. Right. But if you get a 50-pound or a 75-pound black marlin, that's really doable with a fly rod. You can take that fish down in, in real quick. Hmm. So the one place that they, uh, there's a river that flows out of the north coast of Australia and the baby marlin hang off the, that uh, affluent from the river and the bait fish that it tracks. That's where they grow up. It's a nursery for black marlin. <laughs> that sort of thing got to be known. And, uh, you know, if you could stitch it together, if you could get to those places and you got lucky, you could, in fact, uh, start running up the number of uh, offshore a billfish that you could get on a fly hmm. and that's that's what happened hmm. i mean i i got a black marlin off of cape bowling green australia and um and so forth so yeah hmm. that's uh it was kind of a parlor game of you know now we know where like there's baby blues are extremely rare it's hard to find them but they are off uh haiti the dominican republic puerto rico mm-hmm. uh whites are off venezuela and so forth so hmm. anyway that's Wow. So that was kind of uh, about halfway through that uh, book where I thought that then I thought, you know, it's possible to actually write a book on this subject mm-hmm. uh, without going bankrupt. <laughs> Gosh, that anyway, is. Go yeah. Ahead. yeah, no, that's a <laughs> that's one of the stories I think when I was listening to you on uh, on anchored with uh, with April on on her show, you started talking about some of this stuff. And uh, yeah, and it just blew me away because I like probably probably a lot of people don't even realize that you have this whole other end of your fly fishing career where you all this blue water stuff which is amazing and you told a story i think about was it building your your first boat or you had a large boat maybe you can uh quickly or you know just tell us a little bit about that is that is that was that the case you kind of had something you worked on for a while oh yeah in port townsend uh there's two places in the united states have famous famous uh wooden boat building schools one's in port townsend the other's in maine and uh, as a young teacher in Port Townsend, I mean, the, the town was insane for sailboats. It just, that okay. was the environment. Not so much today, but it was back then. And uh, I was uh, just obsessed with getting a sailboat. I had no plans of building one or getting one as large as I ended up with. But um, it's, it's a long story, and it, it yeah. went through a guy that, that that bankrupted himself to get a boat. No, it was a mess. But uh, I ended up spending three years working every day except two days building a sailboat. And I could never have done that had I not been able to learn from guys who were teachers at the wooden boat, the, the okay. school of wooden boat building there. And uh, they did some of the work for me and then also taught me, uh, you know, how to build an inside of a sailboat. And, uh, hmm. It's it's slow, it's not complicated. It's slow because you're you're not dealing with any uh, right angles. You're dealing everything's got yeah. curves to it. Yeah. But um, you, you know, we got her done, and uh, the boat eventually sold the boat to 
uh, sailed the daylights out of the boat, went to Alaska several times with the boat. But um, the son of the one of the founders of Nike uh, paid me cash for the boat when I put it up for sale. Oh, no kidding. It's still, still in Gig Harbor. Yeah, oh, it's still cool. in Gig Harbor and still um, huh. is in, um, you know, yeah. yacht shape. Yeah. yeah. It's maintained uh, as a... What was a nice shot? What, what, what was her? Uh, did she have a name? Yeah, Shearwater. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. I named uh, I, I named my boats after birds. Oh cool. Uh, I had a race. Uh, Shearwater was my cruising sailboat. I had a, a a race boat that I raced in Transpac called Blue Jay. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think if anybody wants to hear more of that, uh, the the story how you describe because there are some really funny parts of the that whole history and uh they could check out the anchored like i said the podcast with april to to hear some of that hear you talk about that but uh i did want to get uh, back into a little more on the um just some of the history sure. of uh steelhead fishing and flies and things like that can you do us uh, you know kind of a a breakdown of just the history of steelhead flies maybe kind of a uh you know kind of a minute or two or whatever to, to for those that don't know kind of where they came from and i know you know, the whole Atlantic salmon, you know, flies and things like that. But uh, maybe just a quick rundown on that. Uh, we got into the Norwegian influence or the Scandinavian influence of tube flies. We're just talking about flies tied on hooks. And uh, the fly patterns, the fly dressings that came from the eastern United States were really colorful uh, brook trout flies. Um, and they were taken out to the west. The locals made them a little larger most of the, the stores either had flies tied locally or they ordered them from uh, uh, United Kingdom uh, okay. outlets. But, um, yeah, and then things like the Scarlet Ibis, the mm -hmm. Coachman, the Royal Coachman. Um, I mean, if you, look at a, if you look at a Coachman, you're looking at a skunk. Um, so the, uh, those flies made it to the uh, – to the western United States, and the center of uh, the earliest time of steelhead fly fishing was in uh, uh, came out of uh, the Bay Area in San Francisco, okay. north. And the first major rivers were the rivers north of San Francisco and the and the Eel. Uh -huh. uh, that was really where it began. Um, yeah, and then it kind of slowly worked its way up, uh, kind of up north. Yeah, um, yeah. There was another. I mean, the centers of steelhead fly fishing were that that jump started the sport were summer run rivers. Yeah, where the fish were really much more free rising than winter fish. Right, and they were below a, a very distinguished feeder streams that were spawning tributaries for that river. So uh, Washington f fly fishers congregated on the North Fork of the Stilly for one-year ocean fish, hmm. and they built all their cabins below the confluence of Deer Creek. Okay. Uh, a steamboat, uh, the famous North Umpqua, yep. uh, was only a couple blocks of pools. I mean, there's there's pools that are only uh, 25 feet long <laughs> that, that have a history. And they're all, all the, that whole run is is a collection point for summer on steelhead that are in the that are sitting there breathing in the cooler water from steamboat creek mm -hmm. um so the uh in in terms of 
in fact, I was on the phone this morning talking to a guy uh, about what what jump-started steelhead fly fishing. And yeah. uh, I was introduced to this book by Bill Bakke, but the best book that we ever had, say, in 1970, the best book we ever had that was in terms of steelhead fly fishing was Lee Wolf's book called The Atlantic Salmon. Yeah. It was, uh, the whole book was about the Maritimes. It was inexpensively produced. The book was, the pictures were muddy. Uh, the ink drained into the, the cheap paper <laughs> as a production book that was dreadful. <laughs> but it was the first time we got into waking flies, uh, hitching flies. Mm-hmm. There was so much stuff in that uh, book that, uh, that applied to steelhead fly fishing in it. Uh, it transitioned steelhead fly fishing just overnight into a whole nother sport. Huh. It was uh, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bill was the one that Bill Bakke was the one that said, you know, you got to get this book. And when I got it, I could see why. Yeah. Um, just hitching flies, for example, was was mind blowing. That for the first time we were swinging uh, wet flies that instead of just wobbling in the current, if you wanted to, you could get them to break through the current and create a V wake. Right totally different fly to a fish who sees the bubbles coming up applies to saltwater too i mean a marlin has the same appeal to a popper that uh, is pushing out bubbles to the side they don't rise to the popper they rise to the the bubbles and steelhead are the same way yeah so um but uh yeah the uh, the transition was from little uh fixed wing uh flies yep from uh, brook trout to to then a hair wings, hair wings right. and uh, and then it then thirty years ago the sport went nuts because we had we had um, tube flies that were made of uh, copper tube flies made of plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sport just went in terms of the flies, and we had, of course got intruders. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, uh, what started me on this book that I'm working on now is seven or eight years ago, I was on a run on the lower Kunal. We were setting up a, at a friend from Japan who I fish with every year, Bill Agashi. And, uh, Bill and I and, uh, Jack were on a run on the, uh, Quinault. And, uh, we had a couple guys paying clients along and I was looking down this run and, and not one single person was fishing any kind of conventional fly. There were some squid rows. There were some uh, intruders, there's this, there's that. Mm-hmm. Nothing in a traditional a wet fly where you tie the fly on a, on a hook. And uh, it, it had changed really uh, dramatically in just about 10 years. It had uh, so changed. So I kind of wanted to uh, get into that. And uh, and then, you know, it, when you get uh, this far along in your writing, there's an opportunity to do some reflecting too on where the sport has gone and the loss of, of so many runs of steelhead, just tragic. So, um, yeah. on the one hand, it's a, it's a history I wanted to write about. On the other hand, it's kind of depressing to, to get write about lost runs of steelhead every day. It's uh, not the happiest way to start your day, but yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's where I'm, I'm kind of stuck on that right now. Um, I'm uh, the book is uh, the the second half of the book is built around the four four main drainages and the issues of preserving steelhead in those drainages and mm-hmm. one would be the Sacramento San Joaquin which I mentioned the Columbia is another yeah 
with the uh, loss of the North Fork as kind of the centerpiece, the largest steelhead we ever had in the lower 48 states for this country were North Fork, Clearwater steelhead. Yeah. They're, they're extinct. They're gone. Right. And um, the in fact, they recycle hatchery fish at the Dorshack hatchery. They don't even make an attempt to preserve uh, any part of that uh, gene pool. Um, and then the uh, Fraser, and of course the the tributary of the Fraser, that is uh, causing so much um, consternation among and grief among uh, steelhead fly fishers, the Thompson, yeah. and then the Skeena. Yep. And uh, I've been in touch with uh, Bob Hooten. I Bob Hooten and I go back at least thirty years. Uh, when I first met him, he was managing the hatchery on the Stamp River on Vancouver Island, and then he went up. Uh, to the Skeena and uh, turn that whole place upside down in be on behalf of Steelhead and kind of became a legend up there. But um, so I'm going to certainly, uh, I've, I've used his fine book and, uh, and emails from Bob and phone interviews that will put together the issues that are, that are imperiling a Steelhead runs on the Skeena. Right, but the Skeena is a is a happy story compared to uh, the yeah. Thompson and the yeah. Columbia and uh, certainly the Sacramento San Joaquin, which is a just catastrophic. Right, right, yeah. I've uh, spent, so that's the yeah. second half of the. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. Oh no, I was just going to say, I've yeah, the Skeena is a place I've spent a little time, and I know I've heard. Uh, seems like runs have been kind of down throughout all of the Pacific Rim for for steelhead, and the, you know you hear the stories about more pressure and things like that. So yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of work for all of us to do to make sure you know, like that next generation. You've you've been, you know, you've laid the groundwork, but there's a lot of people we need to get the word out to you know that conservation message and stuff. So uh, no, I appreciate you uh, spending spending the time to do that. You know uh, the. The Canadian government bought out all the the boats and the nets and the fishermen and stuff on the maritime rivers like the Richtigooch and the Miramichi. That was that that's a that's a no brainer. That was so simple because the fish are worth so much more as a sports fish than as a food fish. Yeah. But we've got a mixed stock fishery, and um, the the Thompson is a prime example of the first Thompson fish that start in homing in uh, to the Fraser to go up the, the Thompson. And I, I've, I've told people, you know, I emotionally I consider the Thompson River and where it is and the way it looks and the size of its fish in keeping with the uh, Norway's Alta, which is far and away the most expensive river in the mm-hmm. world. I mean, you're talking five or $10,000 a day to fish the river. Jeez. But if you can get on, you might have to wait two lifetimes sure. just to get on the, you know, to get membership, and I think membership now is seven hundred thousand to to huh. be a, to be a member. But anyway, um, but uh, the uh, mixed stock fishery—you've got a, a few hundred uh, Thompson steelhead that are uh, heading for the Fraser and going down the inside passages and going down the outside of Vancouver Island and coming through the Strait of Juan de Fuca. But most of them today are coming down the inside, and they're coming—they're coming, they're coming uh, down with potentially millions of sockeye that are heading for the Adams River to spawn. So we're talking a, a retail business in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And you're talking a handful of Thompson steelhead by a small number of fly fishers. Hmm. And when you're weighing that 
the hundreds of millions of dollars against the uh, interest of a few fly fishermen, you don't, it's just, it's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the, the huge dollar value that is attached to commercial fishing just bulldozes uh, special interest like steelhead fly fishing. Just, it's going to get blown over. And sadly, that's what's happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, your, your interest as a fly fisherman uh, are going to be secondary to the interest of an entire industry. We're, you know, we're talking about boats and banks and schools yeah. and uh, native uh, first family Canadians and Native Americans. And uh, um, it's embedded in the economy is the, is the fishing dollars that the, oh, they yeah. get. And it's so difficult to uh, get, get the, uh, save the steelhead from special interest. And in the case of the Thompson, I think they're going to, you're going to lose. I think the Thompson steelhead, um, perhaps the largest steelhead in the history of this planet hmm. are going to be lost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the rundown this year is what a hundred and say 150 200 fish that's it yeah where the run was once we talked about this earlier the run the run was once 25 30,000 30,000 yeah yeah it's going to be a back in the depression right it's going to be a struggle for sure um yeah well i guess there's uh you know i think of a you know it starts with a small group you know i mean obviously there's a lot of challenges but i think again you know you getting the word out and slowly you know maybe you do lose that run or that you know that that whole system but um you know, I guess we just got to keep keep going for it, and you know, getting the word out. But um, you've you've thrown out uh, Trey a lot of uh, you know as we've been talking here, a lot of great big names and you know people that have been that have made fly fishing what it is. Who are a few of your uh, mentors or you know people that have helped you along the way that you know really stick out in your in your life? Um, well, you know, back in the day when I was just getting starting started. Uh, Frank Amato gave me oh, okay. a huge break. Uh, I, uh, I I saw Frank's, uh, I think it was the second issue of Salmon Trout Steelheader in a newsstand. <laughs> and uh, I was shaking like a leaf. I called him and <laughs> said, you know, I'd done all this research about all these fishing flies. And could I send him an article? And uh, he said, sure, send it to me. And I'll, and, I'll, and, if I, and I'll publish it if it's, you know, if it's... <laughs> it's publishable. Mm-hmm. So I typed out on a Olympic typewriter, this uh, little short piece on this fly. And I think the fly was the parmachine bell, but anyway, mm-hmm. and Frank, uh, said, okay, I'll, I'll publish the article. And he, hmm. my, uh, my uh, payment for the article was $5. And Frank was bagging groceries at the supermarket to make money, uh, to hmm. make the money to be able to get that first, uh, issue and that second issue done and then he just made enough money to be able to justify another one and then another one and uh, it was a struggle i mean uh, yeah frank and i go way back and uh uh he kind of started a a second magazine long since forgotten but uh, bill bakke was a visionary as far as uh uh, being anti-hatchery and pro-native fish and pro-wild fish and so forth and uh, and so, uh, Frank and Bill, um, I owe them a lot. Uh, they were, uh, 
mm-hmm. Frank from the publishing standpoint, and, and of course he's very knowledgeable about fishing issues. And Baki um, was the first time I heard, you know, Baki would rail against plastic fish and hatcheries. Mm-hmm. And if you're a Washingtonian, hatcheries are just part of the scene. You just accept the fact that hatcheries are a gift yeah. from the gods. You just go with it. Right. And Baki was the first one that uh, it was like blasphemy, you know, the, no, the hatcheries suck. I mean, we should <laughs> not we should not have any. We should be preserving the um, environment and promoting runs of wild fish. And, um, you know, 50 years later, Bill was spot on. I mean, uh, and everybody knows the uh, hatcheries ultimately lead to the practically the destruction of not just the gene pool, but the fish itself. I mean. Uh, let me digress just for a, a yeah. quick second here. Uh, I wrote a long chapter of the book, and I published it uh, as an article in Tom Buys the Drake. But okay, the uh, Quinault has got uh, um, a hatchery, and they have two hatchery programs. And one is a classic uh, terminal fishery for a food fish for right. steelhead. Right, and the uh, they just recycle hatchery fish and it's it's federally funded the government's involved and they reproduce the fish as cheaply as possible mm-hmm. and uh, the fish are like five six seven pounds yep. the uh, native all fish is like a fire plug and it's really massively built fish it's like a it's like looking at a um, kispiox or a hmm. babeen fish and and then the other hatchery, they have been selectively breeding for three and four year ocean fish for 40 some years. And they uh, net, uh, like they'll pull a fish still alive out of their nets that are, and they scale, they uh, read the scales right there on the water, and they will only select three year ocean fish. Now, this is not an advocacy of any particular hatchery program, mm-hmm. but. These hatchery fish, which are, they they will cross a wild fish with a three-year hatchery returning fish. And the fish average 13 to 17 pounds Jeez. approximately. Yeah. And they have, now they have hatchery returns every year, half a dozen hatchery returning fish, of bucks that are over 30 pounds. Jeez. Uh, it's not advertised. They don't bring it up. The the uh, Quinaults do it out of uh, kind of tribal bragging rights between the tribes and stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, so uh, the but Baki was the first one that the practices that are exercised by the hatcheries where they just recycle hatchery fish. Uh, Bill knew half a century ago that was an absolute dead end, mm-hmm. and um, no one was easily persuaded because. We practically invented mitigation uh, for uh, every kind of environmental disaster you can create, but essentially dams. Build a dam and build a hatchery for mitigation, yep. and, and yep. uh, the whole Columbia River is that way. Yeah, it is. But uh, so uh, Frank and uh, Baki. Okay. Uh, yeah, those are those uh, are two. Yeah. Tremendously influential people in my life, and uh, I owe both guys, both those guys a lot. Uh, a lot. And. Uh, and Frank got me going in, in, you know, being able to publish my stuff, my articles and things like that, and, and gave me a, an opportunity to publish the first few books 
it was you know, yeah. I, I was fortunate yeah no those are huge i mean frank definitely uh i've got a a, a good frank amato story i'll have to tell another time where he uh we dumped a boat in the river and frank was one of the only guys with a sled on the river and he picked us up and <laughs> helped help picked up pick up our pieces as our gear floated down the river but um yeah no that that's awesome those guys are obviously uh big names um I was kind of thinking of a few as you were as you were chatting there, um, you know, about some of the people that influenced you. Do you? I mean, do you do any um, guiding and teaching still to this day? Is that something you? I know you've obviously taught a lot of people through your your writing, but do you do you actually guide or do any of that still? Uh, no, I've. Uh, uh, I I I'll host and work with uh, some clients for Jack. Uh, out on the west end in, in the boat uh, on the river uh, we introduced steelhead fly fishing to a number of japanese guys mm-hmm. um i've done that yeah. the long range fly fishing was was a job i mean that was an occupation i had and it made more money than i could have ever in a million years made guiding for steelhead yeah uh, even if i had my own lodge uh and but it was it was intensely hands-on and uh you know, you know, I, I instructed the crew and the, so that everything was IGFA legal. Uh, I lost count out of how many world records we got on those trips, huh. but it would be a couple hundred. Wow. And, um, I saw, saw during those years, I did this for 11 or 12 years. I saw over a thousand striped Marlin hooked on flies. Um, and we developed the methods to get those, to beat those fish down faster than it had ever been done before. I mean, we could take a hundred pound marlin down in under 10 minutes. Hmm. And it was like, it wasn't a, you know, it, it wasn't warfare. It was more like a ballet. You could you where you put the screws to the fish, but, hmm. um, but, uh, Anyway, where was I? I was kind oh. of wandering there. I'm oh sorry, no, I, I no, I've I've been wandering a little bit too. I've got I've got like fifty questions. I could sit here and talk to you for another th- three hours probably. But uh, no, this is this has been good. We've been. Uh, I love the uh, getting into the history and you know hearing your background. It, it, uh, I, think it I think it makes a lot of sense. The question was, yeah, yeah. The question was, do I guide? And oh right, uh, yeah. There's a um, if you just take a guy out for a day on the river and he falls in the river and drowns, uh, you'll be bankrupted for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I've always, uh, um, when I did the long range fly fishing, um, uh, I was protected under uh, the insurance that uh, fisherman's landing carried and the owner of the boat carried on the boat. Okay. Um, when I'm with Jack, uh, the liability is with Jack. So I, I worked under, um, and the and Jack's independent guides, they're independent business people, but there's some sort of protection that they have also in that regard. But uh, just grabbing somebody and taking them to the river, I've just have not done that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there, it, there's uh, at this point, I'm too old to do it, and I, I haven't been able to fish myself until I get my back fixed. That's right. But um, but anyway, I no. So I've uh, I'm working with. Um, with Jack, we set up this uh, pr- uh, Indian program on the Quinault Indian Nation waters, uh-huh. first of its kind, swing only. Very successful for a f- for a few years, and uh, combination of a, a pretty aggressive netting and uh, just uh, a downturn in the runs. When we had uh, the last year, I was out there. We had it was 
the fishing was very, very poor on the Quinault. Yeah. The Queets was pretty good. Okay. Most people are not aware that the Queets Indians uh, pull their nets. Uh, they pull their nets on Thursday about noon. Mm-hmm. They just, uh, they're no longer anchored. They just swing against the bank and, and they don't put them back in until Monday at noon. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I've been on that river where when those nets are pulled Thursday at noon, yeah. the fish are coming, the fish that are uh, timed on the run on the tide, uh, three miles, two miles above tide water, those fish are already up there. There is not a mark on them that is rose colored. Yeah. They are talk. I mean, they are absolutely ocean bright, a gorgeous fish. Wow. Um, and so Friday, you know, you get on the river Friday and uh, there's, they're already a, a beyond the reservation and they're in public water by then yeah it's pretty cool wow wow that's awesome so um yeah yeah i'm, I'm gonna uh, try to uh, that that's one place the op i haven't been out to yet so i'm uh, i'm hopefully gonna get out this year and, uh, and check out some of the country because yeah obviously you hear a lot of a lot of amazing things about that area um so what i um yeah the other guy was thinking about just real quickly i should oh, yeah. mention it uh there's a lot of guys that have influenced me mm-hmm. because of the the book Steelhead Fly Fishing. There was a profile of a lot of anglers in that book, uh, and I would I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Harry Lemire. Everybody oh, okay. does. Yeah. Um, and um, I spent a good deal of time. I, I uh, Harry had a lot of friends closer to him than I was, but I certainly um, I spent a good a good amount of time with Harry. Um, sometimes made him on the, on the Skagit. I had a little, a Luma drifter jet, mm-hmm. little 15 foot jet engine. So I didn't have to hitchhike my way back. Mm-hmm. I could uh, run back to the launch uh-huh. and I'd run, uh, run Harry up to the sock. But, uh, um, he was pretty shrewd in how he would, uh, develop water and read it and find small holding places uh-huh. and, not sure of that. I mean, oh, really? there was a reason why he oftentimes would find a fish where other people could not. And it was because he had small slots of water that he had, that he knew would hold a fish here or a fish there periodically. Yeah. And, um, and the man was a, an absolute treasure and also a gifted fly tar. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's uh, yeah. a lot of guys. Uh, yeah. Some of the guys that I profiled in the book, uh, word were, um, I learned a great deal from yeah. uh, Lemire was just one of many. Okay, Bill yeah. McMillan comes to mind, of course. He's a very talented guy. And I'll be... Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, go uh, ahead. No, it's y- fine. Yeah, I was going to note that I'll, um, I'll post some, uh, you know, for all the stuff we're talking about uh, as far as links in the show notes, just so people can, if they're not familiar with, uh, you know, some of the information or names. I mean, obviously, these are all big names you're talking about, but I'll try to do my own research and, have, and provide some good links so people can look up... Uh, uh, some of the history there as well. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, you know, like I said, Trey, I had a bunch of questions, but I were kind of getting down, uh, you know, to the end of the show here. I've got a few more. I want to definitely uh, talk to you about. And one of them was, you know, I, I get a lot of questions about the two handed rods and things like that. Um, when did you, what did you make that trend? What was that transition like for you? Because you kind of steelhead fishing at one point was, was kind of, you know, it was a single handed thing. How did that all uh, come about for you? I uh, was getting a lot of rods from Orvis, and uh, I went from getting rods from Orvis to getting rods from Sage. Mm-hmm. But the first two-handed rod I got was way back in the day was from Orvis. It was a lousy rod. But back then, we made our own lines. Yeah. And 
And Dave, the, the lines we made were like today's wind cutters. Yeah. Um, this is, this is so stupid because it was, it, upon reflection, you, everybody would go like, well, duh, of course, but, um, the line, the, the parent line, the, the major line has got to have more grains per foot in it than the sink tip. Mm-hmm. Once we got that through our thick skulls, yeah, then we could make beautiful casting lines by getting, getting a saltwater long belly lines <laughs> and cutting most of the line away and using 10 meters of forward taper that would be, uh, you know, like a, 10 feet of front taper, eight feet of front taper. And the rest of it was a big fat line. Mm. And then to that, you'd tie in your sink tip. And uh, as long as there was no place in that connection where you're running from uh, say 10 grains per foot, I'm just making this up, but running yeah. 10 grains per foot into 15 grains, it just doesn't work. In fact, yeah. a scientific angler made a horrible line that they named a steelhead line of some sort <laughs> in which the uh, running line was much, was like weighed nothing and everything was, right. in, the, it was in the sink tip and uh, it was like having a cat of nine tails in your hand. But <laughs> um, So we made our own lines. Uh, uh, Bob York was the first one at drew a diagram out for me and showed me the kinds of lines that he was making for his own personal use. And I just uh, created the same line a little bit bigger, a little bit longer for a two-handed rod. And, and, okay. and then I had switched and started fishing sage rods. But from that point on, uh, I never went back to single-handed rod for steelhead. It was just, it was yeah. too easy to cover water. Yep. Uh, too easy to, um, I I, uh, I really got into the grease line fishing where you lead your fly instead of yep. back mending all the time. Yep. And uh, so that the fly would swing broadside to the current and would stay down. It would uh, would you you weren't back mending it so that it wanted to pull up from the from its run. Um. Mm-hmm. But uh, as soon as I did that, I I just I, I never went back. And back then, a fourteen foot rod was considered pretty petite, yeah. pretty lightweight, small. <laughs> yeah. Everybody I knew, I fished with uh, Jimmy Honeycutt and uh, Jim Vincent, and those guys were swinging 16-foot rods. Yeah. Uh, that was big-time stuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah it's, uh, that, was, that was fun. Yeah. When we good. started, when we got on to making our own lines, we couldn't buy any lines that were worth a crap. No. They had uh, these um, long-bellied lines were, were horrible to oh, cast yeah. and, and try to work out. But uh, there are our own handmade lines we're dreaming. And I yeah. think uh, Jimmy uh, for Rio just in effect uh, kind of took what, what had been was already out mm-hmm. there and formally uh, got some investors for Rio and produced yep. a wind cutter. And it was, it was a sensational line. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, uh, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're uh, hammer- <laughs> yeah, I'm hammered. Yeah, I got uh, got some more questions to dig in here, but no, that that is I always yeah. love hearing that. Um, so uh, another one I always love to to throw out there is just on flies. I know there's you know everybody has their favorite flies they use or whatever. Is there a are there a couple of steelhead flies that are your you know the first one that you throw on there when you're when you're fishing? Uh, yeah, um, I, for uh, for summer run. I've always liked the night dancer. Uh huh. The, yep. the combination of black, purple, and red. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, well, a couple of years ago, I was talking to Frank, and and he had caught like I don't know eight or ten winter run one day, all on uh, the night dancer tied with some spay hackle, hmm. which 
we can now get the Chinese are now sending uh, marketing uh, heron hackle. Oh, really? They're uh, most yeah, most of the heron. I think they originally they've got so much fish farming in China that huh. the heron around the fish farms they sh- were shooting them. Yeah, and they had all these feathers, and then now they've got a market for the feathers. I I don't know what how it all happens, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Huh. So um, yeah, and that night dancer is. I, I think would, that that's that's a motto is one of his patterns, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah, and um, th- then. Um, uh, my favorite, uh, really dirt, super dirty water fly, was um, a version of um, Bill McMillan's uh, Winter Hope. Mm-hmm. All right. And, but it was tied in marabou, in which the uh, yellow down is down the center and then is flanked with orange. Hmm. But the combination of uh, uh, silver doctor blue um, and purple is the most high vis. One color superimposed on the other is so high vis that you can see it in water that you can almost plow. I've caught steelhead with that in water that was so dirty. But um, yeah. and mm-hmm. I've got some of my own orange patterns yeah. uh, that I that I use mm-hmm. usually with marabou. But most of my stuff today, um, I use. I have my own tube flies. Yeah. That. Uh, I, there's a series of flies that I've been using called steel flash mm-hmm. and for, especially for summer run with a, a size a four or a six hook on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watch steelhead come 25 feet away and, and hammer those flies. Huh. So, uh, they're, uh, they're starting just now getting out on the market okay. uh, in a commercial. And what uh, was the name? What was the name again uh, of that pattern? Uh, Steel flash. Steel flash. Mm-hmm. All okay. one word. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I'll try to find. And I've the, got yeah. The steel. The one I've used most often is 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 a black and purple steel flash fly. Okay. And uh, it's got the, it's weighted up front with um, small chrome barbell eyes that I paint uh, with red glitter paint. Oh yeah. And I know that sounds crazy, but I can see the red uh, uh, the red uh, oh, yeah. head. I can see it out in the river on the swing. Yep. It's uh, makes sense. Red glitter shows up like a, a lantern. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Not very traditional. Yeah. yeah they, no. it, it sure works. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'll try to find some, uh, some photos of those and provide links so people can take a look. Um, as far as, uh, you know, somebody getting into it, um, I'm always trying to find a, you know, a tip or two for people new to steelhead fly fishing. Do you, do you have something you, you, you know, you'd tell somebody who is, you know, just getting into steelhead fishing? Uh, find a, a a run or two runs or three runs walk in mm-hmm. that you can get into walk and wade and uh, know that run at all water levels and know oh, that yeah. run intimately and how the fish move through the run and I, I think it's more profitable and more successful to know a couple runs extremely well hmm. than is to get into a boat and, and float five or six or seven or eight or nine miles for yep. the day yep. and, try to, and try to make a cast here and make a cast there. And most of your day is spent traveling. That's right. Um, and you're on, you're on water that you do not know that well. Yep. Uh, when we fished the uh, Quinault uh, uh, Indian Nation water, there was a couple runs that I knew so well. I mean, I knew every pebble in the run, and I was guiding the Japanese. And I could move a guy in that run to a spot where, and I would tell him exactly where to cast, 
and it would swing through there. And if there was a steelhead in that run, that that guy would hook it. Yeah. And I think uh, um, I think uh, Lemire's uh, approach was the same. He the runs he knew, and he knew oh, oh God knows how many more runs than he knew than I would ever know. <laughs> but his approach was the same. Yeah. Uh, he, he did not head on down the river, bang a cast here, bang a cast there, this run, that run. Uh, the runs he was on, he knew really, really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, that's also in a European approach where they're using a beat system where you've got maybe a one mile, maybe you've got three or four uh, yeah. kilometers of, yeah. of river you're fishing. And you know that extremely well, as opposed to the American would feel like that he's at a disadvantage being confined to that short length of river, yep. but really not so. Uh, if the fish are moving through, he may f- come upon a, the runs that he's going to be fishing, and they're going to be empty of fish on that particular day. But uh, generally, uh, year in and year out, um, the uh, that would be yep. that would be the way I'd go. I'd know yeah. I'd have a few runs, and there's a few runs on the Clickitat here mm-hmm. that are really good. Mm-hmm. And knowing a couple of those runs super well is is you're going to have more success than trying to cover a whole lot of water. It, it is. It's it's a great point and something I, I I definitely struggle at too sometimes because I I love getting the the drift boat out there and floating the rivers. But yeah, that that is a great point to really just focus and and learn the run. Um, yeah, I've got uh, got a couple more here, quick ones, Trey. Uh, this is kind of one I always I have been thinking about for you because I think you've done a lot in your career. Um, as far as you know, just kind of being remembered, what you know, what you'd like to be remembered for in fly fishing. Does anything pop out in your mind? You know, like you know, down the line when when we're all gone and two generations from now, people are still fly fishing. Hopefully, for for the steelhead that are <laughs> have recovered. Um, you know, what comes to your mind? Um, two things, uh, two very different things. One would be that uh, I was able to record and uh, and write about the um, the early pioneers in steelhead fly fishing, mm-hmm. and, and get that down and give the give the sport um, its its heroes, the, the people that uh, everybody from you know Jim Cray to to Zane Gray. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you, uh, to, to record who those guys were and what flies they fished, the traditions that they uh, established. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say that. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, every sport, you don't have a sport if you don't have some sort of tradition. Yeah. Um, your heroes, your people that uh, are were pivotal in the development of the sport. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it. That's what makes it a sport, not an activity. So yeah, I would say that, and the uh, and then the treatment of blue water fly fishing that was a book so far ahead of its time, and yeah. with the uh, with the uh, oceans being are filling with commercial boats, especially the Taiwanese and the Chinese and so forth, it is going to be increasingly hard to find uh, schools of uh, offshore game fish that are not mm. being. Uh, are not being caught for, uh, yeah. I mean, the demand for fish is increasing constantly. Right. Uh, I started catching sailfish in the, in Costa Rica in the mid eighties. And by the mid nineties, the commercial guys were already coming in and our fishing dropped off so dramatically. Um, back in those days, those were some of the largest sailfish in the world. I mean, there were, there were weeks I had down at, um, 
in Bahia Pais Vela Lodge, just south of the Nicaraguan border, that were averaging 115 pounds. Those are big sales. Hmm. Uh, that's gone. Yeah. I mean, those those that is a, a, a because the 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 resource is being plundered by commercial interests, and uh, the largest concentration of marlin in the world is found off of uh, uh, Baja California, about hmm. three fifths of the way down. Okay. Thousands concentrate there before they head on down to Cabo. Huh. And uh, we knew they were there, and we fished for them for years. But uh, that got beat up, too. Yeah. Uh, sooner or later, I mean, the commercial boats are going to move in there. You know, uh, one generation ago, they were in there for yellowfin. Now, with the yellowfin stocks depleted, they go in there and get the marlin. Jeez. So, um Anyway, I, you know, I think the book was ahead of its time, and I'm not sure that a person could, for any amount of money, a person could do that today. Yeah. Just because the resources, the, the availability yeah, of the resources is not there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's true for, uh, yeah, I mean, true for Steelhead, and like you said before, things have changed a lot. Um, so uh, so what do you have going for, like, the next six months? Anything you want to uh, note for everybody here? They can check out any projects. Sounds like you have that book. That's kind of your big project. But I'm going to do an article for um, Tom By the Drake. Yeah, uh, on the Thompson, yep. my, my take on it. It's not a, you know, it's just like um, this is what's happening, mm -hmm. and uh, this is why the fish are becoming extinct, and this is why it will probably the government will probably allow the fish that run a fish in the Thompson to go its way. Yeah. Uh, real quickly, I know you're pressed for time, but yep. real quickly. Um, the Thompson steelhead are in the Alaska fishery mm -hmm. and those, you cannot legally take steelhead in the Alaska fishery. Uh, so fish buyers won't buy it when they're pulled out of the nets. You can either keep them or you can throw them back in the ocean, hmm. but there's no record of any steelhead being caught in the Alaskan fishery. When the Thompson fish get off of the coast of uh, British Columbia and they're caught by either, uh, uh, Washington uh, guys uh, offshore or the Canadian guys closer to the beach, those fish are protected and they're dumped back in the ocean, hmm. but they're, they don't exist. They're hmm. uh, a total pain in the ass for the commercial fishing industry to have to deal with and they, they will not deal with them. Yep. So there's no record of those fish being caught. And um, when they uh, enter the uh, um, Fraser. Uh, they're in the company of uh, millions of sockeye and uh, Washington State and the British Columbia commercial guys at the entrance to the Fraser nets those sockeye stocks. And when they take Thompson fish, they can't sell them. Hmm. So the fish, are, the fish go unrecorded. Wow. And you don't know whether they, how many have been caught. And when they, uh, by September and October, the uh, first family Canadians, the Indians, have got their nets set for chums because of, an, uh, of a um, super ex rapidly expanding row. They call it Keta caviar, Keta the, yep, that's right. the species name for Ankarinkas. And yep. so the Keta caviar is shipped to Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Australia, to sushi bars all over the world. Yep. Um, although the Eastern Russian and the Japanese do have uh, runs of, I think, chums and cherry salmon. But uh, mm. anyway, and so the uh, steelhead... They are noted if the uh, natives take a steelhead in their net and the steelhead is still alive, they'll throw it out of the net and into the river so Jeez. the fish can continue. Yeah. The mortality of the fish is unknown and there's no right. required record that they note the steelhead. So you mm. go right on uh, from the beginning to the end. Uh, 
uh, there is no record of what's happening to the Thompson steelhead, except at the end, there are no steelhead. Right. So uh, it's that is what is uh, you know frustrating and depressing. Yeah. So yeah, that's well, the, that is a challenge. So that's I, I'll write about that for the Drake. I hope. Okay. That would be my next project, and I'm going to go out the West End. Um, I, this uh, surgery I've got is a quick turnaround. Okay. It's not like a full on back it's just two vertebrae that are totally degenerative degenerated so i'll go out there with jack and we'll uh, i'll host some friends i've got some i think i've got some guys coming from japan again yep and we'll uh give it a whirl in the march okay uh, out on the uh, quinault i'd like to i'd love to get on the uh quits again i love that river if if the river's not running too dirty so Yeah. yeah 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 good stuff all right well uh good luck with the uh the surgery and uh before I let you go, is there a place I can uh, that people that are listening to this can find you uh, if they want to ask you questions or um, just kind of pick your brain? Uh, I've got a new email address, which is complicated. It's, it was done for security, so I couldn't get hacked, and it was handled by a company, and they gave me a new email address. It's kind of complicated. Oh, okay. Uh, it's it's uh, T-R-E-Y dot C-O-M-B-S 1897 yep. at P-T dash dot com. Dot com. Dot net, excuse oh, me. Oh, dot net. Perfect. I'll, I think it's dot net. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I think it is. And But my, uh, I'll give you my phone number. If a guy wants to call and okay. then shoot me a trial email, then I'll send him back and then, then the guy's locked into my email address. Perfect. But it's 509-369-369. One zero two five. One zero two five. And I am in Clickitat. At least I'll be in Clickitat for the n- next year. Okay. I'm remodeling this house. Okay. I'm not doing much uh, right now because I'm going to spend uh, most of 2018 completing this book. Yeah. And uh, getting it out, getting it out from underneath it. Uh, I've got a couple other projects I want to get involved with, and the yeah, the book is right now is taking up most of my time. Good, good. Well, that sounds like I mean, it's always good to keep busy. So, uh, so good. I'll, I'll provide links to your uh, email and, and phone here in the in the show notes um, at, at my wetflyswing.com. And uh, yeah, Trey, yeah, Trey, I appreciate you coming on. This has been uh, really uh, exactly what I was hoping to get out of it. You know, a lot of uh, hearing about the history, but there's so much more I want to ask you. So maybe I could ca- catch up with you here in a year or so, and uh, we can kind of do a uh, kind of fill in the blanks, <laughs> <laughs> the, the questions I missed. Maybe, maybe you're too much. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, get, <laughs> we can do a part two in this, yeah. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. All right, all right. Thanks, Trey, for coming on, and we'll uh, we'll see you soon. Dave, thank you, and uh, good luck to you. Okay. And good luck on this project of your podcast. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, sir. Okay, bye. Yeah, take care. So there you have it. If you want to connect with Trey, go to wetflyswing.com and just search for Trey Combs. The show notes with Trey's email and his phone number to connect with him will be in those show notes. Um, And I want to say thanks again for stopping by today to check out the show. Um, It's been great to uh, connect with Trey, and I hope to see you soon and uh, maybe even see you on the river. Uh, Please leave a comment in iTunes and let me know how I'm doing with the show. That would be much appreciated. So uh, I'll catch you uh, very soon and see you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.